Good morning. Hope you had a good week. Hope you're ready for the conclusion of the life and crimes of Ted Bundy. Death. Bundy died in the Rayford electric chair at 7.16 a.m. Eastern EST on January 24, 1989 at the age of 42 years of age. Hundreds of others from 20 off-duty police officers by one account sang, danced, and set off fireworks in a pasture across the street from the prison as the execution was carried out. Then cheered loudly as the white hearse containing Bundy's corpse departed the prison. Bundy's body was cremated in Gainesville and his ashes scattered at an undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance with his will. Modus operandi and victim profiles. Bundy was an unusual, organized, and calculating criminal who used his extensive knowledge of law enforcement to elude identification and capture for years. His crime scenes were distributed over large geographic areas. His victim count had risen to at least 20 before it became clear that numerous investigators in widely disparate jurisdictions were hunting the same man. His assault methods of choice were blunt trauma and strangulation, two revitalizing techniques that could be accomplished with common household items. He generally avoided firearms due to the noise they made and the ballistic evidence they left behind. Bundy was a meticulous researcher who explored the surroundings in minute detail, looking for safe sites to see and dispose of victims. He was unusually skilled at minimizing physical evidence. His fingerprints were never found at a crime scene nor any other incontrovertible evidence of his guilt, a fact he repeated often during the years in which he attempted to maintain his innocence. Other significant obstacles for law enforcement were Bundy's generic, essential, essentially anonymous physical features and curious chameleon-like ability to change his appearance almost at will. Early on, police complained of the futility of showing his photograph to witnesses. He looked different in virtually every photo ever taken of him. In person, Bundy's expression would change so his whole appearance that there were moments that you weren't even sure you were looking at the same person. Stuart Hanson Jr., the judge in the Durant trial, Bundy was really a changeling. Bundy was well aware of his unusual quality and he exploited it using subtle modifications of facial hair or hairstyle to significantly alter his appearance as necessary. Bundy concealed his one distinctive identifying mark, a dark mole on his neck with turtleneck shirts and sweaters. Even his Volkswagen Beagle proved difficult to pin down. His color was very described by witnesses of metallic or non-metallic, tan or bronze, light brown or dark brown. Bundy's modus operandi evolved in organization and sophistication over time, as is typical of serial murderers, according to SBI experts. Early on, it consisted of forcible late-night entry, followed by a violent attack with a blunt weapon on a sleeping victim. Some victims were sexually assaulted with inert objects, all except Healy were left as they lay unconscious or dead. As his mythology evolved, Bundy became progressively more organized in his choice of victims and crime scenes. Bundy would employ various ruses designed to lure his victim to the vicinity of his vehicle where he found where he had pre-positioned a weapon, usually a crowbar. In many cases, he wore a plastic cast on one leg or a sling on one arm and sometimes hobbled on crutches, then requested assistance in carrying something to his vehicle. Bundy was regarded as handsome and charismatic by many victims. Trace Bundy exploited to gain their trust. Ted lure females, Mashad wrote, the way a lifeless silk flyer can dupe a honeybee. Once near or inside his vehicle, the victim would be overpowered, bludgeoned, and restrained with handcuffs. 
Most were sexually assaulted and strangled either at the primary crime scene or more commonly after transport to a pre-selected secondary site, often a considerable distance away. In situations where his looks of charm were not useful, he invoked authority by identifying himself as a police officer or a firefighter. Toward the end of his spree in Florida, perhaps under the stress of being a fugitive, he regressed to indiscriminate attacks on sleeping victims. At secondary sites, he would remove and later burn the victim's clothing, or in at least one case, Cunningham's, deposit them in a Goodwill Industries collection bin. Bundy explained that the clothing removal was ritualistic, but also a practical matter as it diminished, as it minimized the chance of leaving trace evidence at the crime scene that could implicate him. And manufacturing air and fibers from his own clothing ironically provided a crucial incriminating link to Kimberly Leach. Bundy often revisited his secondary crime scenes to engage in acts of necrophilia and to groom or dress up the cadaver. Some victims were found wearing articles of clothing they had never worn or nail polish that family members had never seen. He took Polaroid photos of many of his victims. When you work hard to do something right, he told Hagma, you don't want to forget it. Consumption of large quantities of alcohol was an essential component, Bundy told Keppel and later Mashad. Bundy needed to be extremely drunk while on the prowl in order to sedate and dominate sedate the dominant personality that he feared might prevent his inner entity from acting on his impulses. Bundy's victims were mostly white females from middle-class backgrounds around the ages of 15 to 25, as well as college students. Bundy apparently never approached anyone he might have never met before. In their last conversation before his execution, Bundy admitted to Klopfer he had purposely stayed away from her when he felt the power of a sickness building within him. Rule noted that most of Bundy's identified victims had long straight hair parted in the middle like Stephanie Brooks, the woman who rejected him and to whom he later became engaged and then rejected in return. Rule speculated that Bundy's animosity toward his girlfriend triggered his protracted rampage and caused him to target victims who resembled her. Bundy dismissed this hypothesis. They just fit the general criteria of being young and attractive, Bundy told Hugh Ainsworth. Too many people have bought this crap that all girls were similar but almost everything were dissimilar physically they were almost all different Bundy did concede that youth and beauty were absolutely indispensable criteria in his choice of victims after Bundy's execution Anne Rule was surprised and troubled to hear from numerous sensitive intelligent kind young women who wrote or called to say they deeply depressed because Bundy was dead many corresponded with him each believing that she was his only one Several said they suffered nervous breakdowns when he died. Even in death, Ted damaged women, Rill wrote. To get well, they must realize they were conned by the master con men. They are never they are grieving for a shadow man that never existed. Pathology Bundy underwent multiple psychiatric examinations with experts' conclusions varied. Dorothy Otnall Lewis, professor of psychiatry at New York University School of Medicine and an authority on violent behavior, initially made a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, but changed the diagnosis on more than one occasion. She suggested the possibility of multiple personality disorder based on behaviors described in interviews and court testimony. A great aunt witnessed an episode during which Bundy seemed to turn into another unrecognizable person. She suddenly found, inexplicably found herself afraid of her favorite nephew as they waited together at a dust-darkened train station. Bundy had turned into a stranger. 
Lewis recounted a prison official in Tallahassee describing a similar transformation. He said he became a weird on me. He did a memorial a body and facial change, and he felt there was almost an odor emitting from him. He said, almost a complete change of personality. That was the day I was afraid of him. While experts found Bundy's precise diagnosis elusive, the majority of evidence pointed away from bipolar disorder, rather psychosis, and toward antisocial personality disorder, ASPD. Bundy displayed many personality traits typically found on ASPD patients who are often identified as sociopaths or psychopaths, such as outward charm and charisma with little true personality or genuine insight beneath the facade, the ability to distinguish right from wrong but with minimal effect on behavior, and an absence of guilt or remorse. Guilt doesn't solve anything, really, Bundy said in 1981. It hurts you. I guess I am in the enviable position of having, not having to deal with guilt. There was also evidence of narcissism, poor judgment, and manipulative behavior. Sociopaths, prosecutor George Deckel wrote, are egotistical manipulators who think they can con anybody. Sometimes he manipulates even me, admitted one psychiatrist. In the end, Lewis agreed with the majority. I always tell my graduate students that they can find a... Find me a real, true psychopath, I'll buy them dinner, she told Nelson. I never thought they existed, but I think Ted may have been one, a true psychopath, without any remorse or empathy at all. Narcissistic personality disorder, NPD, has been proposed as an alternative diagnosis in at least one subsequent retrospective analysis. The afternoon before he was executed, Bundy granted an interview to James Dobson, a psychologist and founder of the Christian Evangelical Organization, focused on the family. Dobson used the opportunity to make new claims about violence in the media and pornographic roots of his crimes. It happened in stages, gradually, Bundy said. My experience with pornography that deals on a violent level of sexuality is once you become addicted to it, I would keep looking for more potent, more explicit, more graphic kinds of material. Until you reach a point where the pornography only goes so far, where you begin to wonder if maybe actually doing it would give that which is beyond just reading it or looking at it. Violence in the media, Dobson, particularly sexualized violence, sent boys down the road to being Ted Bundy's. The FBI, Dobson suggested, should take out adult movie houses and follow patrons as they leave. You're going to kill me, Bundy said, and that will protect society from me. But out there are many, many more people who are addicted to pornography, and you are doing nothing about that. While Nelson was convinced that Bundy's concern was genuine, most biographers, researchers, and other observers included that his sudden condemnation of pornography was one last manipulative attempt to shift blame by catering to Dobson's agenda as a longtime pornography critic. Bundy told Dobson that true crime detective magazines had corrupted him and fueled his fantasies to the point of becoming a serial killer. Yet in 1977, letter to Anne Rill, Bundy wrote, Who in the world reads these publications? I have never purchased such a magazine, and on on one only two or three occasions have I ever picked one up, Bundy told Michaud and Ainsworth in 1980, and Hegmeyer the night before he spoke to Dobson that pornography played a negligible in his development as a serial killer. The problem was the pornography, wrote Deco. The problem was Bundy. I wish I could believe that his motives were altruistic, wrote Rowe, but all I could see in Dobson tape is another Ted Bundy manipulation of our minds. The effect of the tape is to place once again the onus of his crimes, not on himself, but on us. Rule and Ainsworth both note that for Bundy, the fault always lies with someone or something else. 
<coughs> While he eventually confessed to 30 murders, he never accepted responsibility for any of them, even when offered the opportunity prior to the Chai Omega trial, which would have spared him the death penalty. He deflected blame onto a wide variety of scapegoats, including his abusive grandfather, the absence of his biological father, the concealment of his true parentage, alcohol, the media, the police, whom he accused of planning evidence, society in general, violence on television, and ultimate true crime periodicals and pornography. Blundy blamed television programming, which he watched mostly on set, that he had stolen for brainwashing him into stealing credit cards. On at least one occasion, Bundy even tried to blame his victims. I have known people who radiate vulnerability, Bundy wrote in a 1970 letter to Klopfer. Their facial expressions say, I am expecting to be hurt. Do they subtly encourage it? A significant element of delusion permeated Bundy's thinking. Bundy was always surprised when he knows, when anyone noticed that one of his victims was missing, because he imagined America had to be a place where everyone is invisible except to themselves, and he was always astounded when people testified that he had seen them in incriminating places because Bundy did not believe people noticed each other. I don't know why everyone is out to get me, Bundy complained to Lewis. He really and truly did not have any sense of enormity of what he had done, Lewis said. A long-term serial killer erects powerful barriers to his guilt, Keppel wrote. Walls of denial that can sometimes never breach. Nelson agreed. Each time he was forced to make an actual confession, Nelson wrote he had to leap a steep barrier he had built inside himself long ago. Victims. The night before his execution, Bundy confessed to 30 homicides, but the true total remained unknown. Published estimates have run as high as 100 or more, and Bundy occasionally made cryptic comments to encourage that speculation. He told Hugh Ainsworth in 1980 that for every murder post-site, there could be one that was not. When FBI agents had proposed a total tally of 36, Bundy responded, add one digit to that and you'll have it. Years later, Bundy told attorney Polly Nelson that the common estimate of 35 was accurate, but Robert Keppel wrote that Ted and I both knew the total was much higher. I don't think even Bundy knew how many he killed or why he killed them, said Reverend Fred Lawrence, the Methodist clergyman who administered Bundy's last rites. That was my impression, my strong impression. On the evening before his execution, Bundy received his total, his victim tally, to reviewed his victim tally with Bill Hagmeyer, on a state-by-state basis for a total of 30 homicides. In Washington, 11, including Parks, abducted in Oregon, but killed in Washington, and including three identified in Utah, eight, three unidentified in Colorado, three, in Florida, three, in Florida, three, in Oregon, two, both identified, unidentified, in Idaho, two, one, one unidentified, in California, one unidentified. The following is a chronicle summary of the 20 identified victims and five identified victor survivors. 1974, Washington, Oregon. January 4th, Karen Sparks identified as Jody Joni Lenz and Bundy Lineager, age 18, bludgeoned and sexually assaulted in bed as she slept, survived. February 1st, Linda Ann Healy, 21, bludgeoned while asleep and abducted, skull and mandible covered at Taylor Mountain site. March 12th, Donna Miguel Manson, 19, abducted while walking to a concert at the Evergreen State College. Body left, according to Bundy, at Taylor Mountain site, but never found. April 17th, Susan Elaine Rancourt, 18, dis- disappeared after attending an 
Evening Advisor Meeting at Central Washington State College, Skull and Men were covered at Taylor Mountain site in 1975. May 6th, Robert Roberta Kathleen Parks vanished from 22 vanished from Oregon State University in Corvallis. Skull and Men were covered at Taylor Mountain site in 1975. June 1st, Brenda Carol Ball, 22, disappeared after leaving the Flame Tavern in Burien. Skull and Men were covered at Taylor Mountain site in 1975. June 11th, George Ann, often misspelled George Ann with two N's. Oh, with an E before the A. Hawkins, 18, abducted from an alley behind her sorority house, UW. Scales were made identified by Bundy as those of Hawkins recovered at Issaquah site. July 14th, Janice Ann Ott, 23, abducted from Lake Sammamish State Park in broad daylight. Scales were made recovered at Issaquah site in 1975. July 14th, Denise Marie Naslin, 19, abducted four hours after Ott from the same park. Scheduled remains recovered at Issaquah site in 1975. Utah, Colorado, Idaho. October 2nd, Nancy Wilcox, 16, ambushed, assaulted, and strangled in Holiday, Utah. Body buried, according to Bundy, and near Capitol Reef National Park, 200 miles south of Salt Lake City, but never found. October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, 17, vanished from Middale, Utah. Body found nine days later in nearby mountainous area. October 31st, Laura Ann Ames, 17, disappeared from Lehigh, Utah, bludgeoned and raped. Body discovered by hikers in American Fork Canyon. November 8th, Carol DeLange, 18, attempted abduction in Murray, Utah, escaped from Bundy's car and survived. November 8th, Deborah Jean Kent, 17, vanished after leaving a school play in Bountiful, Utah. Body left at Gordon Bundy near Fairview, Utah, 100 miles south of Bountiful. Minimal scheduled remains, one Botella found, were eventually in 2015, positive identified DNA as Kent's. 1975, Utah, Colorado, Idaho. January 12th, Karen Eileen Campbell, 23, disappeared from a hotel hallway in Snowmass, Colorado. Colorado. Body discovered 36 days later on a dirt road near the hotel. March 15th, Julie Cunningham, 26, disappeared on the way to a tavern in Vail, Colorado. Body buried, according to Bundy, near Rival, 90 miles West of Vail, but never found. April 6th, Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25, abducted while bicycling to her parents' house in Grand Junction, Colorado. Body thrown, according to Bundy, into the Colorado River five miles west of Grand Junction, but never found. May 6th, Lynette Don Clover, 12, abducted from Alameda Junior High School in Pocatello, Idaho. Body thrown, according to Bundy, into what authorities believe to be the Snake River, but never found. June 28th, Susan Curtis, 15, disappeared. During a youth conference at Brigham Young University, body buried, according to Bundy, near Price, Utah, 70 miles, 75 miles south of the Provo, but never found. 1978. Florida. January 15th. Elizabeth, Margaret Elizabeth Bowman, 21, bludgeoned and then strangled as she slept. Child Omega Sorority, FSU. No secondary crime scene. January 15th. Lisa Levy, 20, bludgeoned, strangled, and sexually assaulted as she slept. Child Omega Sorority, FSU. No secondary crime scene. January 15th, Karen Challen, 21, bludgeoned as she slept, child Mega sorority, FSU, survived. January 15th, Kathy Kleiner, 21, bludgeoned as she sleep, child Mega sorority, FSU, survived. January 15th, Cheryl Thomas, 21, bludgeoned as she slept, eight blocks from Chai Omega, survived. February 8th, February 9th, Kimberly Diane Leach, 12, abducted from a junior high school in Lake City, Florida. Scheduled remains found near Suwannee River State Park, 43 miles. Plus the Lake City. Other possible victims. Bunny remains a suspect in several unsolved homicides and is likely responsible for others that may never be identified. In 1980, he 
87, he confided to Keppel that there were some murders that he, he would never talk about because they were committed too close to home, too close to family, or involved crime victims who were very young. Anne-Marie Burr, age 8, vanished from a Tacoma home on August 31st, 1961, when Bundy was 14. The Burr house was on Bundy's newspaper delivery route. The victim's father was certain that he saw Bundy in a ditch at his crime site at the near, on the nearby UPS campus. Um, the morning his daughter disappeared. Other circumstances influenced him as well, but detectives familiar with the case have never agreed on the likelihood of his involvement. Bundy repeatedly denied culpability and wrote a letter of denial to the Burr family in 1986, but Kevill had observed has observed that Burr fits all three of Bundy's no-discussion categories of too close to home, too close to family, and very young. Forensic testing of material evidence from the Burr crime scene in 2011 yielded insignificant, insufficient intact DNA sequencer comparison with Bundy's. Flight attendant Lisa E. Wick and Lonnie Trumbull, both 20, were bludgeoned with a piece of lumber as they slept in basement apartment in Seattle, Queens, and Hill District. On June 23, 1960, near the Safeway store where Bundy worked at the time and where the women were shop. Trumbull died in retrospect, couple known in many slumber to the child mega crime scene. Wick, who suffered a permanent memory loss as a result of the attack, later contacted Anne Rowe. I know there was Ted Bundy who did that to us, she wrote, but I can't tell you I know. How I know, in absence of the criminal evidence, Bundy's involvement remains speculative. Vacation calling friends Susan Davis and Elizabeth Perry, both 19, were stabbed to death on May 30, 1969. Their cat was found that day, abandoned beside the Garden State Parkway outside Summers Point, New Jersey, near Atlantic City, 16 miles south of Philadelphia, and their bodies, when one nude and one fully clothed, were found in nearby woods three days later. Bunny attended Temple University in January through May 1969 and apparently did not move us until the after Memorial Day weekend. While Bunny's accounts of his earliest crimes vary considerably between interviews, he told forensic psychologist Art Norman that his first murder victims were two women in the Philadelphia area. Biographer Richard Larson believed Bundy committed the murders using his feigned injury ruse based on an investigator's interview with Julia Bundy's aunt. Bundy's aunt, Ted, she said, was wearing a leg cast due to an automobile accident on the weekend of the homicides and therefore could not be half traveled from Philadelphia to the Jersey Shore. There is no official record of any such incident. Bundy is considered as Strong suspect, but the case remains open. Rita Curran, a 24-year-old elementary school teacher and part-time motel maid, was murdered in a basement apartment on July 19, 1971, in Burlington, Vermont. She has been strangled, bludgeoned, and raped. She lo- he, the location of the motel where he worked, adjacent to Bundy's birthplace, the Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers, and similar to known Bundy crime scenes, led a retired FBI agent, John Bassett, to propose him as a suspect. No evidence firmly places Bundy in Burlington on that date, but municipal records note that a person named Bundy was bitten by a dog that week along and long stretches of Bundy's time, including the summer of 1971, remain unaccounted for. Curran's murder fisher remains unsolved. Joyce LePage, 21, was last seen on June July 22, 1971, on the campus of Washington State University, where she was an undergraduate. Nine months later, her scattered remains were found wrapped in carpeting and military blankets bound with rope in, deep, in a deep ravine south of Pullman, Washington. Multiple suspects, including Bundy, have never been cleared, according to investigators. Whitman County authorities have said that Bundy remains a suspect. Rita Lorraine Hall Jolly, 17, disappeared from the Westland 
Oregon on June 19th, 1973. Vicki Lynn Hollow, 24, disappeared in Eugene, Oregon on August 20th, 1973. Oregon detectives suspected that they Jolly and Holly, but were una unable to obtain interview time with Bundy to confirm it. Both women remain classified as missing. Catherine Mary Devine, 14, was abducted on November 24, 1973, and her body was found the next month in the Capitol State Forest near Olympia, Washington. Brenda Joy Baker, 14, was seen hitchhiking near Poliap, Fort Washington, on May 27, 1974. Her body was found in Millersville. Miller Sylvania State Park a month later, though Bundy was widely believed responsible for both murders, he told Kibble that he had no knowledge of either case. The analysis led to the arrest and conviction of William E. Cousin for Devine's murder in 2002. The Baker homicide remains unsolved. Sandra Jean Weaver, 19, a Wisconsin native who had been living in Toole, Utah, was last seen in Salt Lake City on July 1, 1974. Her nude body was discovered the following day near Grand Junction, Colorado. Sources conflict on whether Bundy mentioned Weaver's name during the death row interviews. Her murder remains unsolved. Melanie Suzanne Susie Cooley, 18, disappeared on April 15, 1975, after leaving Netherland High School in Netherland, Colorado, 50 miles northwest of Denver. Her bludgeoned and strangled corpse was discovered by road maintenance workers two weeks later in Cold Creek Canyon, 20 miles away. Gasoline station receivers placed Bundy in nearby Golden on the day Cooley disappeared. Cooley is included in some compilation of Bundy's victims, but Jefferson County authorities say the evidence is included and continues to treat her K homicide as a cold case. Shelley or Shelley with an E, K. Robinson, 24, failed to show up for work at Golden, Colorado on July 1, 1975. Her new decomposed body was found in August, 500 feet inside a mine on Birdtown Pass near. Winter Park Resort by two mining students. Gas station receives placed Bundy in the area at the time, but there is no direct evidence of his involvement. The case remains open. Nancy Perry Baird, 23, disappeared from the service station where she worked in Layton, Utah, 25 miles north of Salt Lake City on July 4, 1975, and remains classified as a missing person. Bundy specifically not involved in this case during his death row interviews. Debbie Smith, 17, was last seen in Salt Lake City, Utah in early February 1976, shortly before the trial began. Her body was found near Salt Lake City International Airport on April 1st, 1976, though listed as Bundy victim by some sources. Her murder remained un officially unsolved. Minutes before his execution, Hagmar acquired Bundy about unsolved homes in New Jersey, Illinois, Vermont, the current case, Texas, and Miami, Florida. Bundy provided directions later proven inaccurate to Susan Curtis' burial site in Utah, but denied in any of the open cases. In 2011, Bundy's complete DNA obtained from a vial of his blood found in an evidence vault was added to the FBI's DNA database for future reference in these and other unsolved murder cases. Artifacts Bundy's 1968 ball flag beagle was displayed in the lobby of the National Museum of Crime and Punishment in Washington, D.C. Until its closure in 2015, it is presently on exhibit at the Alcatraz East Crime Museum in Pigeon Fork, Forge, Tennessee. A ski mask, rope, flashlight, handcuffs, gloves, and a nylon mask were all found inside Bundy's 1968 Volkswagen Beetle's glove compartment. Polaroid photographs of Bundy's victims have been found throughout the years in media films. The Deliberate Stranger, 1986, played by Mark Harmon. Ten Buddy, 2002, played by Michael Riley Burke. The Stranger Beside Me, 2003, played by Billy Campbell. 
The Riverman 2004, played by Carrie Elwes. Bundy, A Legacy of Evil 2008, played by Corin Nemec. The Capture of the Green River Killer 2008, played by James Marster. Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile 2019, played by Zach Efron. Books Rule and 1980, The Stranger Beside Me. W.W. Norton and Company, Incorporated. Sullivan Kevin M. 2009, The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History, McFarland Company, Inc. Ainsworth Hayes, 2000, Ted Bundy, Conversation with the Killer, Author Link Press. Nelson Polly, 2019, Defending the Devil, My Story as Ted Bundy's Last Lawyer, Echo Point Books and Media. Carlisle, Al, 1976, Violent Mind, the 1976 Psychological Assessment of Ted Bundy, Development of the Violent Mind. Genius Book Publishing. Mishaz, Stephen G., 2012, The Only Living Witness, The True Story of Serial Killer, Ted Bundy. Author Link. Television, Ted Bundy, Devil in Disguise, Ted Bundy, and an American Monster, Ted Bundy, What Happened, Conversations with the Killer, The Ted Bundy Tapes, 2019. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this uh, discussion on... Uh, Ted Bundy, The Life and Crimes of a Serial Killer and Rapist. <sighs> Tune in next time for more true crime stories. I hope you have a good week. Stay safe. Stay home. Practice social distancing. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it.